I know that these many days have been very tiring for all of you. Uh, I can see it from your faces this morning. Uh, too many parties, too many obligations. For some of us, it's the preparation of gifts. Speaking of gifts, if Cindy, my wife, headed her way, all of her Christmas gifts would have been distributed in early November. You see, I married someone who plans very much in advance. My wife has uh, worked out her list and prepared many and the majority of her gifts in the end of October, by the end of October, and she is eager to give them out. But I have to tell her, honey, it's too early to distribute Christmas gifts in October. It's just simply too early. And when she saw the Christmas tree of the church go up in mid-November, she said, is it time yet? The Christmas tree is up. I said, no, it's still too early. Please wait until December when you can distribute it like everyone else. If you were to know who I was before I was married, uh, you would know that I was always at a certain place the day before Christmas. On Christmas Eve, you can find me at the 24-hour Walmart department store. What was I doing there? I was beginning my Christmas shopping, thinking of what to buy for my family and friends the day before it was to be given out. And so you know that God has put together two people who are diametrically opposed, and that is a good thing. Because if it was up to me, many of you would get your gifts in January. When I think about Christmas, and when you think about Christmas, what do you think most and best mimics the Christmas story? What I mean by that is for many of us in our minds, the first Christmas was quite chaotic. It seemed like everything was planned last minute. Mary is about to give birth and there is no room in any of the inns in Bethlehem. Now, here's a question I've always wanted to ask Joseph and I will ask him when I get to heaven. Joseph, could you not have gone to Bethlehem a few weeks earlier? You know, if you'd gone to Bethlehem a few weeks earlier, you could have your pick of all the inns in Bethlehem. Why do you have to plan it and go on the very day of arrival when your wife gives birth? I want you to think about that. All right, you ever think about that? Could they not have planned it out a little bit earlier? A little bit earlier. Then they wouldn't have to stress. So a lot of our Christmases mimic what we think was that first Christmas. Chaotic times, rushing around, often doing things at the last minute. But if you are to read the Christmas narrative account, according to the scriptures, you will find that it is a very different picture. You will find the revelation of a God who prepared for the very first Christmas thousands of years in the past. In fact, he has planned this first Christmas even before the world was created. When God was preparing his Christmas present in the person of Jesus Christ, he planned his Christmas present to us thousands of years before it happened, in fact, even before the world was created. And that's something we don't often think about. What we forget is that in the revelation of God, when he came to take on human form in what we call the incarnation, God reveals himself as a God who prepares. A God who prepares. God who prepares in everything that he does. And it's a good reminder that God does not shoot from the hips. 
He always has everything planned out because it is His very nature. God is not surprised by anything. God does not allow Himself to be surprised in His sovereignty, in His wisdom, in His omnipotence, in His omniscience, in His other attributes. God is a God who prepares. And therefore, it's interesting to think that those who plan things in advance, those who think things through, are actually mimicking the way God operates. And we find that in the wisdom literature throughout the scriptures, especially in the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we are told to plan. We are told to number our days. We are taught and told to think things through. You see, planning is not just a singular truth. It is not something that is simply ascribed to God. It is a way of living. You see, the revelation of who God is and the revelation that He is a God who prepares in advance deeply affects the way we live. How, you may ask. Let's take a look as we continue our sermon series entitled, More Than a Manger, as we see how the incarnation who reveals... To us, a God who prepares teaches us to live life. Remember, the Christmas story is not simply about the manger. It's not simply about the star or the shepherd or the wise men. It is about the revelation of who God is to mankind and the revelation that he is a God who prepares. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, as we pick up our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 1, verse 57, as we take a look all the way to verse 80. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Luke is the third Gospel uh, in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and then we get to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. If you remember from two weeks ago, uh, we left Mary. She was with Elizabeth. Uh, She had gone to a city in Judea to see if Elizabeth was really pregnant past her childbearing age. And in fact, she was. She was six months pregnant. And the Bible tells us that Mary stayed three more months. And we can reasonably assume that Mary stayed until the birth of John. Look at verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. As the Lord had prophesied and promised to the angel Gabriel, Elizabeth's birth of John, her giving birth to a son, brought the community together and they rejoiced with this family. And look what happens in verse 59 to 62. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. As is was customary in the Jewish culture, on the eighth day of a child's birth, it was the day of circumcision. And on that day of circumcision, the child would be given a name by the parents. Now you remember from a few weeks ago that Zechariah could not speak because... He had doubt in his heart whether Elizabeth could give birth or not. And so the people could only guess at the name of this newborn son. Now, it wouldn't have been a very difficult guess because 
custom dictates that often the firstborn would be given the name of the father, something like Ben Zachariah. Ben in Hebrew means son, son of Zachariah. And so most people would assume that the first child, the firstborn son of Zachariah and Elizabeth would be called perhaps Ben Zachariah. If you remember from a few years ago, the movie Ben-Hur, that is not his name. Ben-Hur simply means son of Hur. All right, so firstborn son, Ben-Zachariah. But Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, her son would be named John. And people were surprised in her community because there was no one in their family named John. Why is this child being named John? Is there something we don't know? And you can imagine the gossip that would ensue that this firstborn son and this only child of Zachariah and Elizabeth was named John. And so they asked the father if he concurred. Look at verse 63. And Zacharias asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Zechariah affirmed the decision of his wife Elizabeth and said his name would be John as the Lord had commanded. If you remember, that is what the angel Gabriel had told Elizabeth. This was the long-awaited child of a long, barren couple. Here was the opportunity of a lifetime for that child to carry on the name of the family and of the father and to be a source of pride for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But for Zachariah and Elizabeth, they demonstrated great obedience to the will of the Lord. And look what happens when he affirms the name John, verse 64 to 66. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Somehow, all of the community found great interest in this child named John. Their focus was now on John. There was something special about him. Why was he special? Why were they interested? Because he could not have his father's name. And if they were to dig deeper... As the news spread around the Judean countryside, they found out that Zechariah could speak and then he could not speak and then he could speak again. And how his mother had him at a very old age, well past childbearing age. And so John became the talk of Judea and they wondered about him and they kept a close eye on him. Now you may say, why do I care? Here was a unique child. We know the story. He becomes John the Baptist. But you see, the unique circumstances of John's birth was not by chance. God had orchestrated it so that the people's attention would be focused on him because he would be the forerunner for Jesus. Isn't it amazing that the community's attention would be upon him and as he grew up, 
they would begin to listen intently what this unique child had to say. And what did this child have to say as he grew up? He would call the people to repentance as he would point them to the Messiah. God made it in such a way, he orchestrated it in such a way that the people wondered about him. And whether it was gossip, whatever the case, at his birth, John, soon to be called John the Baptist, had an immediate following. God prepared it so that they would take special notice of him. And as he grew up, they would take special notice of the very important message he would bring. You see, I believe the gospel writer Luke put this section in, in the birth narrative of Jesus, to clearly show us that God is a God who prepares. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. He doesn't do anything without thinking. He doesn't leave anything to chance. God has thought it through since from before time, because of his sovereignty and wisdom, God is a God who has revealed himself as one who prepares. And we know from the Christmas story that God prepared a Savior for us. But what is it about this preparation of a Savior that teaches us about God and how we are to respond and live? Let's take a look as we continue in Zechariah's prophecy, verse 67 to 70. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been, note this, since the world began. When Zechariah's voice came back, he prophesied. And we note in verse 67 that he blesses the Lord for providing a savior he has raised up a horn of salvation. Note that Jesus was not yet born, still in the womb of Mary. But for Zechariah, the coming of the Savior was pre-planned by God. Note this in verse 70. Since the world began, and throughout history, God's prophets have been prophesying about this truth. The Savior has been prepared and will be coming. You see, God knew that mankind would fall. But because of his great love, God prepared it that his own son, the second person of the triune Godhead, God himself, would have to die to save the world. Imagine the wonderful implications of this great truth. God prepared for us a savior from before the creation of this world. And it is something we think about, we can't really fully comprehend. God prepared his Christmas, not in October. God prepared his Christmas gift to mankind thousands of years before it happened, before time began. We can't fully comprehend it because it is something we naturally cannot do. Let's say you're a parent and let's say that somehow information was given to you that your not-yet-born child would grow up to rebel against you. You would have a child, and that child would grow up to despise you and to hate you and to reject you and cast aspirations against you. And let's say before your child was born, your lawyer came 
and asked you to sign an irrevocable will that states that everything you have goes to him or her. Would you sign that will knowing how your child will grow up and reject you? Of course not. We would wait and we would see, as many of you are currently doing, to see how your child would grow up, to see if they are deserving of your hard-earned money. We're Asians. We know how this works. In fact, many parents dangle money to restrain and to hold on to their children. If you take care of me, then you can get this fortune of mine. If you listen to me, if you're a good child, then it is conditioned upon me giving you what I have. It's not natural to us. And yet, it was not the case for our Lord. He knew that mankind would fall even before we were created because He is all-knowing. And He provided a means of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is an amazing thing to think about. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, God chose us and God provided a way of salvation through His Son even before the world was created. Now, I know many of you know this truth, but do you appreciate this truth? And does it change the way you live your life? We often don't appreciate this great truth that God prepared a Savior for us from before time. Because we don't appreciate anything until we need it. All right, let me give you an example. How many of you this week told your spouse or house helper, thank you so much for keeping the flashlight battery fresh and the emergency lamp charged just in case our electricity goes out? Anyone thank their spouse or their house helper for having fresh batteries in the flashlight or having the emergency lamp charged and ready to go? Anyone? Probably not, because this week we didn't have a blackout or a brownout, right? At least here in Grace Village, we didn't have one. Most of us don't even think about it. Maybe after the sermon, you'll go back and check your flashlight batteries. But most of us don't think about it until the power goes out. And what happens when suddenly the power goes out? If it's anything like my, my household, there's a lot of yelling. Get the flashlight. Where's the flashlight? Well, here it is. How come the flashlight doesn't work? Where's the candles? We don't have any. You mean you didn't buy candles on the offhand chance that there is no electricity? Uh, some of you are smiling because I think that's what happens in your house. It is in that moment that you need the flashlight and you need the emergency lamps working. But boy, do we appreciate it when that does happen and the flashlight works and the emergency lamp is charged and ready to go. We celebrate the one who has prepared it. Similarly, how appreciative are we that God has prepared a contingency plan if and when man sinned. God wasn't scrambling for a Savior when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. He didn't say, oh no, where's the Savior? We've got to find one. Let's huddle and discuss triune Godhead. No. 
the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, said, I will die for the sins of mankind even before that time happened. Something to celebrate. God prepared for us a Savior from before time. And if you're taking notes, that's the first principle I want you to note. God is a God who prepared, number one, God prepared a Savior for us from before time. God prepared a Savior for us from before time. And the truth that God has made a contingent plan, even before it happened, even before man fell, should give you a greater appreciation and a celebration to adore the one who would even think to volunteer himself to give his life to save us. God prepared a Savior for us from before time. I know that's a more heady concept. I want you to go back and think about that. The next time there is a blackout, electricity dies, I want you to think about contingency. And I want you to think about how God made possible a way by which the darkness of this world could be made light again through his son. Go back and think about that. And you cannot help but respond in praise and adoration. Meditate on this truth. Verse 71 to 75. Zechariah continues. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which we swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Zechariah continues his prophecy and states that God prepares a salvation through his son for many purposes. Verse 71 talks about the purpose of sending a savior to save us from our enemies. Verse 72 to 73 talks about the purpose of God fulfilling a promise given to Abraham, who is the forefather of Israel. God provided a way of salvation to fulfill a promise of God's mercy being upon them. In verse 74 and 75, another purpose, that we would serve him without fear. Note this in verse 75, standing before the heavenly father for all eternity. I want to focus on this last purpose. My friends, we are saved for a purpose. And what is that purpose? We are saved for the purpose of serving and glorifying God for the rest of our lives. To grant that we, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, being saved, might do what? Might serve him without fear. Now we will have the privilege of standing before God face to face without fear. And when we stand before him, we serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. You see, salvation is not just a one-time event. It's not when you raise your hand and you say, I want to receive Christ. Salvation continues in the sanctifying work of your life to be set apart for God's holy purpose, and it ends in glorification 
where our sin nature is taken away and we will stand before the Lord with an eternal purpose to serve Him. We are saved to serve. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there it is again in Ephesians. God prepared a Savior for us for an eternal purpose, to serve Him, to work on His behalf by serving others. Works do not save us. But as a byproduct of being saved, we are called to do good works. And here's number two, if you're taking notes. God prepared a Savior for us for an eternal purpose. God prepared a Savior for us for an eternal purpose. God didn't just save us so that we can go to heaven. That's one of the wonderful outcomes of salvation. We get a chance to go to heaven. And that's how a lot of Christians think. They think that once I'm saved, I just wait until my time to go to heaven. But God saved us to give us an eternal purpose, to give us a greater calling, greater than ourselves, to live for something more, and that is to serve with an eternal purpose, our Lord. If we're going to serve our Lord for the rest of all eternity... Should we not start now? You see, my friends, if Christmas is only about you and yourself, then you have missed the eternal purpose that the revelation of a God who prepares has called you to do. If Christmas is only about how you have good feelings and can, can absorb the festive spirit, how you can be in the quote-unquote Christmas spirit, whatever that means... For some of us, Christmas is how many parties we go to, how many social obligations we go to, what we will get. If that is what Christmas is about, then you've missed the entire purpose of the coming of Christ. Because here in the prophecy of Zechariah, the Bible tells us, God prepared a Savior for us for an eternal purpose, that purpose being to serve. If you want to get in the Christmas spirit, Serve God, serving others. This past week, uh, someone delivered a gift. Uh, well, actually, this entire week, many have been delivering gifts to our children. Thank you so much um, on behalf of the pastoral and minister staff. You as a church community have really blessed us in so many ways. So I want to thank you for that. But uh, someone delivered uh, some gifts for our children and I came home after work one day, and uh, my children were very, very excited. Daddy, can we open a gift? I said, well, children, you, you know the rules. We've got some rules about opening gifts, especially when it is a uh, final exam this week, as you know. Uh, they said, Daddy, please, just open one gift, just one. I said, well, why are you so excited about opening this one gift? Then they told me, Daddy, because someone gave us an Xbox. I looked at my wife uh, with one of those looks that says, wow, such an extravagant gift. I, I couldn't believe it. I asked my children, how did you know it's an Xbox if you're asking to open it? They said, well, Daddy, there was a space in the wrapping. And, and so we peeked in, and, and I think we saw a controller. It's an Xbox. 
Of course, I went and I looked at it. It seemed to be about the same size. And uh, I have to admit, I was a bit excited as well. <laughs> Lots of games I've always wanted to play, like Halo and others. And so you know how parents are. When your kids really want something, it's a great opportunity for you to make them do stuff and to do it really quickly. I said, all right, all right, we'll let you open one, but you better finish all of your chores. You have to eat dinner. You have to prepare for the evening. Something miraculous happened in our household. They did it so fast. I, they ate like they'd never eaten before. They, they prepared and got into their pajamas uh, and rinsed off as fast as they can. So I know they can do it. I know they can do it fast. And so there they were. They said, well, Daddy, we're all done with our chores. Can we open it now? And so I said, all right. And so we went to our bedroom, and I said, all right, go open it. Well, they tore into it, and they opened it, and guess what? It wasn't an Xbox. <laughs> I have to admit, I kind of felt sorry for them. They were so excited. Uh, and I have to admit, I was kind of disappointed myself. Now, please, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for one. Uh, our family really does not need one. We, we already have spent countless useless hours playing our Nintendo. But so uh, let me just put that on the record. But uh, they were still happy with the toy they got, but not as happy as what they had said in their mind they thought they received. After they went to bed, my wife and I, we talked about it. We laughed about it. And I went to my study and I began to think about such a, a, a funny incident. The more I thought about it, the more I realized this is so true to life. You know, we expect some things which isn't really there. And when we open it, we realize with great disappointment why it's not there. In many ways, the world has packaged a way to live life. They package a life in beautiful wrapping the world has. And they say, if you want to open this, then you do what I tell you to do. And so we, with great excitement, do what the world wants. We're so excited because we've, we've thought, we've looked at it, and we've peaked, peaked to see what success brings and what money brings and what social status brings. And we love because we cannot wait to open it up and it becomes ours. And so we get to our retirement years having lived 70, 80 years to be able to open up that beautiful gift that the world has packaged for us. And when we open it, we find out that what we were promised has not panned out. And so many are deeply disappointed, but it's too late. They're at the end of life. They've already lived their life thinking they can open what the world has so beautifully packaged. On the flip side, God's wonderful Christmas gift was not packaged at all. We often say God packaged this Christmas gift in the person of Jesus Christ as a babe of Bethlehem. There is no packaging in the Christmas story. In fact, I don't think God likes gift wrapping very much because in the Bible, nothing's a surprise. God prepared an eternal purpose for us that all those who know Jesus will have to accept him to serve him or not. God didn't package so that we could, with open eyes, see what we are receiving and what we are getting. Yes, it may not be as exciting as the anticipation of having it unwrapped 
and seeing what we are getting. But my friends, listen carefully. I would rather have a little bit less anticipation and excitement, but know exactly what I'm getting than with false anticipation and excitement try to open up a gift at the end of my life and realizing that what was promised to me was not actually given. But so many Christians in our lives live for the anticipation of what simply is not there. And yet, what has been revealed to us in the scriptures of how the packaging of the Christmas present of Jesus and how we are to live when we accept it is wide open for us. It says that God has prepared a Savior for you as a gift so that you can have an eternal purpose and that eternal purpose being to serve Him for all eternity. So if you resolve this Christmas to serve the Lord by serving others, then you have captured the true revelation of the God who has revealed Himself as the one who was prepared. Christ came to earth to be born and die so that you and I have the ability to stand before God face to face. That's what verse 74 and 75 tell us. How are you serving God this Christmas? How are you fulfilling your eternal purpose? It is something the Savior has enabled us to do. That is the Christmas purpose. Not for you to feel good, but for you to serve. Serve God. Number 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah now turns the prophecy to his own son in verse 76. And talks about his future role. John the Baptist would be the forerunner. A herald to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. And this mission had a unique message. Verse 77 to verse 80. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his manifestation to Israel. John, who would later be known as John the Baptist, would tell the people that there is a Savior. There's a Savior coming but not a Savior who will solve all of their earthly problems. Not a Savior who will save them from the oppressive Roman Empire. But more importantly, a Savior who will save them from their sin. Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to His people. And how is that salvation come by? By the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. Because of God's mercy, God sent His Son to come to give light to those living in darkness. Light shines through darkness because the sin problem has been dealt with. And you see, John the Baptist's earthly mission was to point people to Jesus. And you also have the third principle here, number three. God prepared a Savior for us, number three, for an earthly mission. Not only did He give us an eternal purpose to serve Him 
for all eternity. He gave us an earthly mission. And what is that earthly mission? Just like John the Baptist in the Great Commission, our earthly mission is to point the world to him. The one who brings light to darkness. The one who solves the world's problem of sin. You see, Jesus did not come to solve everyone's earthly problems. Be careful to listen carefully when I say that. Can he solve every problem? Absolutely. He can throw off oppressive governments. He can allow you to have riches untold. But he came to solve the most important problem of mankind, which was the sin problem, a problem that no one could solve on their own. It was a problem mankind could not solve. You see, everything else mankind can solve. Mankind can change governments. Mankind can stop wars. Mankind can allow you to be rich. But mankind cannot save a sinner. And so Jesus came to solve mankind's most important problem, the sin problem. This should be your number one cause. This is your earthly mission. You see, I know that a lot of you have a lot of causes. Some of you to save the world. Some of you to save the environment. Some of you to save the whales. I don't know what else you want to save. Save Laguna Bay. Um, save Manila Bay. A lot of things we want to save. Wonderful things. We are called to be good stewards. You can have wonderful causes. But you should have, as the number one cause in your Christian life, the mission, the earthly mission to point men and women in your spheres of influence that you advocate that a Savior has come to solve the sin problem. And He died on the cross to save our sin. Why would God use us? I have no idea. God who thousands of years before it happened, in fact, before the world was created, meticulously planned the events of the first Christmas, Christmas that Zachariah's son would not be called Zachariah, he would be called John. And as we're going to talk about the next two weeks, about how he was born in a manger, everything so meticulously planned. Why in the world did God not allow the information dissemination of the Savior's coming How come he didn't use angels? Why did he have to use people like you and me? I have no idea. You know, wouldn't it be great if once a year we could see all the angels? Once a year, the archangel Michael would show himself and the angel Gabriel would show himself and we could see the heavenly host maybe on December 25 or January 1 and all these heavenly hosts only had to say two things. Believe Jesus, trust Jesus, and I bet you a lot of people would come to know Christ. Right? When you see a heavenly being, yeah, I'm sure you would want to believe in Jesus. A more effective evangelistic method, let the angels appear and share the gospel message. But it doesn't work that way. I have no idea that in the meticulous, sovereign, unerring plan of God, that he wants the information to be disseminated of his Savior to come in the form of people like you and me, If I could add lazy people like you and me, people who are afraid like you and me, people who are more concerned with our face and our reputation like you and me, than about the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? And yet, he uses us as the vehicle of communication. 
to tell the world that the most pressing problem of the world has been dealt with, the sin problem through his son, Jesus Christ. If this Christmas you have not told one person about Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done, then you've completely missed the purpose of Christmas. Because God has given us an earthly mission. God prepared a Savior for us for an earthly mission. His coming is so that we can tell the world that the sin problem has been solved. As we'll talk about in a few weeks, the shepherds. Shepherds came. They saw. What did the angels tell them? Go and tell. Go and tell. Tell the world about the Savior. That is your earthly mission. And there it is. The revelation of God in the incarnation reveals himself as one who prepares. God prepared a Savior for us from before time began. God prepared a Savior for us for an eternal purpose. God prepared a Savior for us for an earthly mission. With all that preparation, including costing the life of his son, Will you not fulfill the purpose that he calls you? You know, if someone throws you a multi-million peso birthday party. Let's say someone throws you a multi-million peso birthday party at the grandest hotel here in the Philippines. Would you dare not show up? I'm sure you'd show up. Even if you didn't ask for it, even though you didn't plead for it, you would be embarrassed not to show up because all the preparations have gone in, right? Now think about the preparation that before the world was created, God prepared a way by which it would cost the life of his son in great humility when he took on human form. Would you not be embarrassed to want to fulfill the purpose of that preparation? And that's something you've got to think about. If God has prepared so meticulously since from before time in eternity past, costing the life of his son, would you not want, even out of sheer embarrassment, I hope not, to fulfill that purpose? This Christmas, I want to challenge our congregation to examine your life. Are you fulfilling the eternal purpose and the earthly mission that the sending of his son demands from your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we examine our life and examine my own life this week, I come to the realization that there are times that your great preparation has landed with a recipient who's just not prepared. Someone like me who is not emboldened to share more of the earthly mission and to do more of the eternal purpose that you've called us to do. So again, Lord, I pray that in this Christmas season, when we are reminded of the Savior's coming, that all of us as a church would once again open up our hearts and our mind that it's the God who's revealed himself as one who prepares and makes no mistakes, who loved us so deeply even before we messed up, you provided a way by which your son gave up his life for the ransom of many, including me and us. 
I pray, Lord, this morning that our purpose will be clear. Our mission will be fulfilled. Challenge us. Let us not simply hear the words of the scriptures. Let us do it. In Jesus' name we pray.